Welcome back to Bad in Bed, the queer sex education podcast. This is episode nine. Bobby and I are so thrilled to bring on Clark Hamill, a gender and sexuality educator who primarily works with gender nonconforming kids, to talk about all things gender euphoria, gender dysphoria, pronouns, transgender and non-binary allyship, 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 (laughs) and so much more. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Clark on, I am taking the time travel machine back a few years to my university classroom. What was that class like? Because honestly, I just went to college for advertising, so zero culture involved. Like, wait, I had wait, you went to school for advertising? I did. I was in advertising for three years before I became a journalist because I was oh, a copywriter. Wow. So I wrote the ads and then I was like, this is too uh boring. I need oh to Oh my gosh, something. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because I guess I had, so I'd had one experience with a woman prior to college and I guess that was enough to convince me that I needed to learn more about queerness. Right. And like, I did know that I was gay going into college, Mm -hmm. but like retrospectively, I'm shocked that I had the self-knowledge to take these classes. But basically for four years, I wrote a queer memoir for school. I took queer movie classes. I got to learn about queer history, the AIDS epidemic. I mean, it was honestly a dream. I miss it. I miss learning about queer history in a classroom setting. Were you like out and queer at the time or were you still kind of like, I got to figure this out before I make my departure from the closet, so to speak? So I definitely knew that I was lesbian going into college, Mm -hmm. but through the queer studies classes, I think I gained a better understanding that queer was also a word that fit well. Right. And I, that was kind of what I was going to ask. Like if that was the class was kind of more affirming to how you were feeling and it made you kind of more confident in yourself. Yeah. It connected me to a rich community of queer folks, both in the present day and also to queer history. Right. And I will say I grew up in a liberal area, but I certainly didn't have gender and sexuality studies. So I knew nothing about pronouns before these classes. I knew nothing about queer activism. And so these classes were really vital to me being a good and educated member of the queer community who knows to introduce things like my pronouns and my name. I don't know where I would have learned that information outside of the classroom. Absolutely. Especially because I don't think episodes, podcast episodes like this existed at the time. No. And honestly, my experience, like, I mean, to know your queerness is to know your queer history, I feel like. Mm. And that was something that I never really knew until I came out of the closet. Like, I remember when I came out, this group of like bears, they call them, um, just big, that hairy, means like hairy, muscle men. Yeah. So they kind of took Wait, are you a bear? I don't know. I've been called that, but a cub or like a cub is like a smaller bear. Like it's just. Okay. You're a bear derivative. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, So they kind of like took me in and they were like every week they would give me a lesson in queer history. So they would be like, come over, we'll watch a queer movie and we'll tell you about things that happened. These guys, these were men in like their forties and fifties. And they just kind of like 
they knew I came out later and they were like, well, let's let you know everything that you need to know. It was awesome. Oh my gosh, my heart. Yeah. So that was kind of my uh, education. Like how you were saying, I don't know how I would have learned otherwise. That was kind of my mm-hmm. education. But then, you know, I got, I only learned about like the queer male identity and history there. So like from there, my curiosity peaked and through my job, I got to explore, you know, like uh, gender dysphoria, which we're talking about more today and mm-hmm. trans folks and pronouns. And it's honestly, as much as I know now, I know I need to know so much more. Like I'll never, I don't think I'll ever be confident in knowing enough. Do you know what I mean? And there's something reassuring and also scary about the fact that the language that the queer community uses and what is considered good allyship is always evolving. And so I'm really grateful to have other sex educators who are able to speak to that in a way that is educational. And then also people like Clark to teach us all the things. Absolutely. Speaking of, do you want to talk to him now? Let's bring him on. Let's do it. joined by Clark Hamill, a gender and sexuality educator who primarily works with gender expansive, trans, and non-binary kids, as well as with teachers to promote LGBTQ allyship and anti-bullying. Clark, we're so thrilled to have you on the pod. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I think uh, one of the best places for us to start is just with a gender 101 lesson. So Clark, can we ask you to just explain the difference between sex and gender before we get into the meat? Absolutely. I think that's a great place to start. So sex and gender are different things, right? So sex is essentially defined by our genitalia, by genetic differences in chromosomes, primary and secondary sex characteristics, and is what is used to determine the gender a person is assigned at birth because all a doctor can see is external genitalia and babies cannot talk. Sex is not a binary Male and female is what we're most familiar with, but actually 1.7% of the population is intersex, meaning having a sex that can't be boxed into male or female. That number, that percent is the around the same as the number of redheads in the world. So if you know a redhead, you know someone who's intersex. Mm-hmm. Gender is our core sense of self. Mm-hmm. That is who we know ourselves to be, who we feel we are as men, women, neither, both, anything else entirely. And our gender identity can be congruent with our sex assigned at birth, which we call Mm -hmm. cisgender, cis meaning same, or different than our sex assigned at birth is transgender, right? So where do pronouns play into the whole sex gender conversation? There's a huge range in the pronouns that a person has and uses. She, he, the singular they. Uh, There are neo-pronouns, right, or new pronouns that have been added to language like Z. So we don't know someone's gender identity or its complexity just by knowing someone's pronouns, but learning a person's pronouns is a really great first step to respecting any individual's general identity, whether they're trans or not. Can you explain what gender dysphoria is? I, I think it's really important to actually share a little bit about the history of it, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. So in 1980, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's basically like the Bible of mental disorders for, for, di- for diagnoses. So mm-hmm. the DSM-3 
was published and included something called gender identity disorder. Mm -hmm. And it was listed as a psychosexual disorder. The DSM-4, the next edition in the 90s, clarified that dysphoria is actually more often related to how society discriminates against trans people and not actually a disorder of identity. And then the DSM-5, which was published in 2013, changed the language to gender dysphoria rather than it being an identity disorder. And so gender dysphoria is essentially the feeling of distress due to incongruence between your assigned sex and your actual gender. And then Clark, on the flip side, right, there's gender euphoria. So how do you describe that to folks? And also, is it something that just trans people experience or can cis people experience it too? So gender euphoria is all about the joy that we experience when we do things or wear things or feel things or experience things that make us feel like the gender that we are, make Mm. us feel affirmed in ourselves, which I think is something that any person can experience. The reason it's particularly important for trans people as an experience is that people focus so much on the pain and suffering of trans people, but often for for ourselves, and if you ask most trans people, you know, like, how did you know you were trans? It's usually not rooted in pain and suffering. It's usually rooted in things that actually made them feel good or feel happy or feel like, oh, I enjoy doing this rather than I hate doing this. In watching those videos, somebody was saying that sometimes it's not euphoria that you necessarily feel. It's like you just, it just feels right. Yeah. Why it's not as dramatic uh, an aha as as people, you know, narrate it as. It's just like, oh yeah, that feels normal. (laughs) Right. Uh, Would you be open to sharing um, some of your experiences Growing up, I experienced a lot of gender euphoria, taking every opportunity to like dress up as a boy, Mm -hmm. be a male figure for Halloween, for any dress up opportunity. I was always very loud, very rough and tumble, all this stuff. And that there was a euphoric feeling just in feeling like a boy and feeling like Mm -hmm. I belonged with my guy friends. When I got to high school, I cut all my hair off started wearing my dad's old jeans that I pulled out of the closet. I was a very late bloomer, so I hadn't really hit puberty yet. Mm. And so I I sort of hit puberty about a year later at 15, and all of my male friends sort of backed off of the whole you're one of us thing. Mm. I dove right into conformity. There's photographs of me age, you know, 15, 16 in like tight slinky dresses. As soon as I cut all my hair off, I started growing it back out again. Mm. I wanted to fit in. When I got to college, that was, you know, like two months in, I changed my name to Clark. And Mm. by a year later, I was identifying as non-binary, which for me was really a stepping stone to admitting that I am a man. And then, you know, the the rest is history. Um, But for me, the dysphoria really was an afterthought in that I didn't realize that what I was experiencing my entire life was dysphoria until it was named as such. And had you met or had any interactions or seen on TV trans or non-binary people before you got to college? When I was in high school, I knew a couple people who 
were trans, all of whom were trans femmes or trans women. In everything I saw in all of the trans representation, I did not see trans men or trans masculinity anywhere. It was all like, if you felt this way, if you wanted to dress this way, you were just a butch lesbian. But I was like totally obsessed with boys. So that never really made a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Right. Do you feel like there's an assumption as a trans man that you are attracted to women? Absolutely. I think there's a huge assumption that if you are trans, part of why you transition is to be straight. Uh, Mm. That's like a a big sort of like misinformation, anti-trans rhetoric. And for me, oh wow, that was definitely <laughs> the opposite. Yeah. How have you, when you did um, initially come out, what was uh, your dating experience like? Or how did people, family and friends take the news? And It was a mixed bag. My friends mm. were overwhelmingly accepting of me and very, very sweet. Uh, it took my family a little longer to get on board. It was very hard on my mom. She felt very attached to having a daughter and it mostly just took time for her to see that I was pretty much the same person and that our relationship would not change. You know, I wouldn't want to talk to her the same way. I wouldn't want to cuddle with her. I wouldn't want to do these things that we did as like mother daughter When I decided to start taking hormones, I was dating a guy who identified as bisexual. We actually ended up breaking up because he was not comfortable with me physically transitioning. And that was very, very painful to to process that someone could like me as a man, but only as like a certain type of man, as a man with Mm. a body that was not as masculine as I wanted it to be. When you are, when you do have gender dysphoria, it's usually, is it diagnosed by a medical professional? Is that how it, like, I read that you have to possess like two of a certain series of uh, distressing situations or, and feel them for over six months or something. And then a doctor can diagnose gender dysphoria. Is that still the way it works or it sounds so strange? Yeah. Pardon my language. It's completely fucked. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the history, part of why I wanted to share the history of it earlier is that trans people are highly medicalized and sensationalized as needing mental help, physical changes, and, and these things without a diagnosis of dysphoria. Um, physical transition is gatekept really severely. Yes. So insurance won't cover a surgery unless you've been on hormones for at least 12 months. There's oh, wow. all sorts of, you know, prerequisites to accessing care, uh, gender affirming care, yeah. because it is technically still like a diagnosis. It is technically still like a, a, a mental illness in a lot of senses and a lot of people still really view it that way. I'm noticing a number of like online health hubs popping up over the course of the pandemic like folks is one that comes to mind Mm -hmm. that they kind of operate on a consent based model where like they tell you what will happen if you do x or you take x and then you get to make the decision. Yeah and I love yeah so folks is one plume is another there are some really amazing organizations out there that are doing the work to make sure sure that people have access to care without having to go through all of this crap. I will say that even with those wonderful organizations, it doesn't change the way that insurance companies view these things. So like for my 
top surgery. So when I had my breast removed, I needed a letter from a doctor. I needed a letter from a therapist and I needed a letter from a psychiatrist. Now my surgeon did not need all of those things. My surgeon just needed a letter from my general practitioner stating that I was physically healthy enough to have major surgery, (laughs) but Mm. my insurance required all of these things in order to cover it. So it, it gets complicated when you bring in all the different factors of, you know, the healthcare industry. And I call it that because it it really is an industry. Wait, wait, so can I ask, I mean, you're taking hormones now, you're continuing to take hormones. Does your insurance company require like annual updates on letters from X, Y, or Z people? No. So I've been on hormones long enough, really, all they need is I have to have like regular blood work done to make sure that it's not like doing anything negative to my body, um, which it is not. Uh, And (laughs) other than that, it's fine. But in order to, so I, I, I get my hormones prescribed from uh, like a gender affirming LGBTQ clinic. So Mm -hmm. because of that, I had a sort of similar thing where I just sort of went in, had a consult, went back, signed a bunch of forms, and then they just prescribed it to me. Um, which is great. Not every doctor is going to do that or do it in that way. Claire, can I ask you something about kind of the work that you do and the questions that kids kind of come to you with? Do you notice a difference between what they're what they're asking and noticing and learning about themselves to compare to like when we were that age? Is media representation really making a difference in your perspective? It is. It absolutely wow. is. I was working with a group of high schoolers And this one, we were talking about sort of different sexualities and the way that definitions of sexualities are not as, you know, gay means boys like boys, lesbian means girls like girls. And this person, uh, this, this, you know, student sort of raised their hand and was like, well, I'm a non-binary lesbian. And like, to me, lesbianism means that you're not a man and you like people who aren't men. And do you think that that's, that's accurate? That's how I define it in my circles. And I was like, oh my God, in your circles, you're like 15 wow. years old. And to, for me, so when hard. I was growing up, I the, like forget about the nuance of definitions. I was struggling to even grasp on to the basics. But wow, still. I'm stunned by that story. Because I just wrote a story about like, how do you know if you're lesbian? And I asked three folks... Um, three experts to define it, and two of them did not define it as the sort of more historically accurate definition that you just gave. I was going to say something that Bobby and I were talking about before you hopped on the video was this idea that as like queer people, we undergo the second adolescence after we come out as gay or lesbian or bisexual or queer. I'm curious to hear if that is a similar experience for trans folks. Oh, definitely. I think it's 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 amplified in a way for people who decide to take hormones especially because you literally go through like a literal second puberty um and oh that's a good point yeah there is this element of like okay so i'm figuring myself out my voice is cracking i just got the first hair on my stomach and (laughs) i want to talk to a cute boy and i don't know how like there's total thing where it really does feel like like you're you know starting from scratch and and getting excited i mean i'll just you know 
from my own experiences, I think I got excited about male friendships and about being included and just being acknowledged as a boy in a very sort of like little kid excitement sort of way. And I, mm-hmm. I really think that that is very present. Um, I went through a big period of exploration and I know many trans people do this of like figuring out how you like to dress, how you want your hair to be, all these sorts of sort of physical presentation things. And what happens a lot when young people come out, they often swing all the way to one side of, you know, very masculine or very feminine, and then sort of slowly swing back to how they have maybe always wanted to dress and always wanted mm. to do their hair. The reason that happens is is there's this intense need to be affirmed, to be gendered correctly right. by strangers, to, you know, quote, pass as the gender that you are. And then mm-hmm. slowly that becomes less and less of a concern and you're mostly just excited to wear the clothes that you've always felt comfortable in. Can you explain the difference between transgender and gender nonconforming? A transgender person can be gender nonconforming mm-hmm. um, and a gender not it's like square rectangle you know they they can yeah. they can share identities but they are also inherently different a um a gender non-conforming person can be cisgender or transgender mm. and is somebody that essentially does not conform to typical gendered norms and stereotypes it's almost it's almost like Okay, I'm going to say something and then tell me if this is wrong or right. Okay. It's almost like lesbians and gay men, there's something inherently gender nonconforming about them when the norm is being attracted to folks with different genders than their own. Right? Like, is there a way in which, like, sexuality... I know that we do a lot of work to say sexuality and gender are different. I get that. But I feel like there is this way in which, like, they inform each other. There is definitely a way in which they inform each other, I think, especially relating to uh, presentation um, and and gender expression, right? Gender expression, which is different than gender identity and Mm. the gendered expression of, you know, not all, but many like queer people is different than, than, you know, uh, conforming to gendered expressions, right? Uh, so in that sense, I definitely think that, you know, I mean, historically, like, butch lesbians and drag queens and, you know, cross-dressers, like, all of those things, like, like complete gender nonconformity doesn't mean anything about their actual mm. gender identity. Um, oh, oh. You know, yes. but totally gender nonconforming just inherently, I would say. I'm um, speaking. That, oh, do you want? Oh, no, you go. This is a follow up. You go. Again. Sure. I was going to say, I, I ask that because to me, Dyke is very much my lesbian gender. Yeah. And so there's this like, there's this way in which the two inform each other. Yeah. I think they can definitely inform each other, you know, in the way that they are, they are different parts of our identity, but they all live together in our one self. So. Right. Right. And I think uh, you touched on passing, which I know is something of a uh, controversial term. Yeah, absolutely. I think that passing is a very arbitrary thing that was made up by people who felt as though if you were trans, the whole idea of it was so that everyone would see you as the gender that you are, whereas to me, being trans is about seeing myself as the gender that I am. And so the whole concept of passing 
puts your gender identity in the hands of other people, which is not great. And I, I do think that for many trans people, it is, um, it is an issue of safety in many spaces and places, but passing as a general concept, you know, like, what does it mean to pass as non-binary or as gender fluid? Like that, that doesn't exist. A gender can look like anything, you know? Um, and this is something I, I talk about with teachers is that a boy can look like anything. A girl can look like anything, you know? So why does a trans girl have to wear a pretty princess dress? She doesn't. She can wear jeans and a t-shirt like she always has and still be a little girl, just like all of the cis little girls in your class. You know, there is this expectation of gender conformity from trans people because people think that we need everybody else to see us as the gender that we are. But the real reason we feel that way is because we are worried about our personal safety, <laughs> not because we need everybody to affirm who we are. I know, right? I, I just, Clark, you're so smart and like well-spoken. It's just, we absolutely adore you. Thank you, you speak. You make things so digestible. Yeah, for people who who these terms aren't familiar to. I'm like so impressed by you. Me too. Wait, Clark, do you have a place where people can go to continue to learn from you and watch you speak? Because my God, I want to just listen to you talk forever. No <laughs> I wish. Um, you know, that's something I work on. I definitely post plenty on my Instagram. Um, where you can find me talking about gender related things. The the work that I do with teachers with youth is um, a little more official, but I'm always happy to engage in a conversation with somebody about gender. Oh my gosh, we'll have to have you back because I feel like we yes. just sort of like touched on the gender 101. I want to have you back for gender 201. Yes, happy to continue the learning. On next week's episode, Gabby and I chat with Colin Bedell, the astrological icon behind Queer Cosmos. We discuss how astrology can determine sexual compatibility, which signs are the best in bed, and Colin analyzes each of our charts for an incredibly enlightening reading that hits close to home. This will be the last episode of Season 1, so please rate us 5 stars if you've enjoyed the podcast. It really helps the algorithm and gives us great visibility. Thanks so much!